Hello everyone and welcome to Rolling Forward. I am your host Ben Baldieri and thank you for tuning in. Rolling Forward is dedicated to exploring topics related to mental health and sports and the interplay between the two. I'll be talking to high performers in various areas such as sport, entrepreneurship and business about their experiences with mental health and the struggles they have had and in doing so seeking to broaden the dialogue. Mental health is a huge issue which has historically not received the recognition it deserves so I'm looking to do my bit to change that. My guest today is Dr. Kimberly Carter. Dr. Carter is a clinical psychologist who is building her career around the education and treatment of mental health disorders. She is a BJJ purple belt and has fought professionally in MMA, taking the win as the underdog in the first professional women's MMA bout in Hong Kong. And in this conversation, we explore Dr. Carter's experiences competing as a woman in the combat sports arena. We also dive into her PhD thesis, which looked into the subjective experiences reported by users of sensory deprivation tanks. We then dig into her time as a special needs teacher and then into her research into other alternative therapies for mental illness. This one is covering subjects that are particularly close to my heart, so I hope you enjoy this conversation. Kim, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Um, You've been in the cage before. You have fought professional MMA. Um, mm-hmm. And just as a, a little bit of context, um, Kim is a mental health professional. And yet, from a personal standpoint and a hobby standpoint, she likes beating people up. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Um, I wouldn't say I like beating people up. Uh, I'd say yeah. I enjoy training. Mm-hmm. And Beating people up is a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist. I graduated last year with my doctorate of psychology, and that was a degree that took four and a half years. Um, I've, but I've always been, not always, my mum tried to make me an athlete when I was a child, and my mum was very sporty, and I was not interested at all. And then as I got older, I realised that sports were a great way to make friends. And, um... And I ended up in an MMA gym because I had watched a friend earlier that year who's actually now part of the UFC Performance Institute, and she's a professional fighter. Um, and But I watched her in a Muay Thai fight in January of that year. And um, I'd done boxing in high school and actually had an amateur boxing fight while I was in high school. Nice. And I had, like, headgear and everything. And then I'm in this MMA gym... A, an instructor, a South African Muay Thai guy comes up to me and he's like, hey Kim, he's like, you want to fight? And I was like, now? And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, fight in three months. And I was like, oh yeah, that's actually, that was the reason I started this gym. Sure, no problem. He's like, okay. Uh, it's MMA. I was like, MMA, MMA. I was like 2013 and I'd watched a little bit of like Ultimate Fighter yep. and and my take my take home from that I was like it's not really about skill it's about who wants it more and and that kind of mentality is very integral to who I am like I was something that I hold very near and dear to me is my work ethic and I feel like like you you can't outwork a good work ethic right um and so I was like okay and he's like okay but your opponent is like a blue belt in jiu-jitsu and I looked over because it was a big MMA gym and like the boxing area was here, the the like the mats and the jiu-jitsu area was there. And I was like, oh, they're like the homoerotic stuff in pajamas. <laughs> no problem. How hard can that be? <laughs> Little did I know. Um, so that started my relationship with MMA. And I so I I picked up jiu-jitsu because I wanted to fight MMA. And then I had that first amateur fight. That went really well. That was fun. I, I lost on decision, but it, I really enjoyed like the three month intensive training period. I dropped down ten kg to fight. Um, I was a I was a chubbier girl uh, at the time, and um, but what I really loved was like that tunnel vision and focus. Having that goal to work back from. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that. And then um, and then in twenty fifteen, the same fight promoter approached me and said that they were looking to put on the first professional women's fight in Hong Kong. And if I would be uh, one of the fighters. <clears throat> and I was kind of like on the fence about it. And then I know something just changed. Like, yeah, actually, this is my time to shine. My poor mother, when I told her, I was like, Mom, I'm taking part in an MMA fight. She's like, no! 
She's like, why? Why? I was like, because I have to. I have to do Got this. To do it. And even in my amateur fight, she was, she was there was in a, like a hotel, a big ballroom. And um, I just remember, like, the woman took me down and my mum was shouting from, like, one of the tables, get up, get up. And I was like, oh, shit. I think like, if my mum is in the shouting to her, I was like, got to get up, got to get up. Uh, yeah, so, and then like, she's come she's come to see a lot of my fights, uh, like jiu-jitsu. And even when I was playing rugby in college, she'd come Ooh. out sometimes, yeah. Cool. My number one fan, yeah. Cool. So you mentioned that your, your mum was kind of a... Um, guiding influence in terms of getting you into sport as a kid um, and also that your work ethic is something that you're, you're particularly proud of. And do you mm-hmm. think that your mum was responsible for kind of fostering the development of that work ethic? Um, so my mum's half Chinese, half English, mm-hmm. born and raised in Hong Kong. Her dad was a policeman, so that's how my family ended up in Hong Kong because okay. he was shipped over. So I'm just a hangover from the colonial era. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, she was very strict, but she never put academic pressure on me um that really was kind of the climate and the culture of my school where like a was average and so you just got to work really really hard and I've I don't know I don't know where this chip on my shoulder has come from but I've always felt like I have something to prove part of the reason I took on the MMA fight because I felt like I had something to prove and here was a really good opportunity for me to show everyone what I was made of because I didn't think that people saw me the way I saw me. Now, what was interesting about the MMA fight, and and I won, but the press afterwards, because this woman was, um, she, she was going to win it, right? That, that's why I won. She had amazing media, lots of followers on Instagram. And then after the fight, she still had amazing media. In in one publication, they were like, MMA champion. And I was like, what? I was like, I won. Lost. Yeah. I won. And and that actually the period after that fight sent me into quite bad depression because A of all I was managing far too many things at the same time and B, I was like what I took on this fight to show people what I was made of and I didn't get the public um, recognition that I felt that I was I was chasing. And so a big part of my own therapy, which I did go in for after that, and my own realization was you don't do things to prove things to other people. Um, and I learned that in a very painful way. Do you think that the the loss of that goal, because you mentioned that you, you fell into depression after the fight and mm-hmm. you loved having the tunnel vision aspect involved in the training, something that can be quite common, especially after, say, like a bodybuilding show or a powerlifting meet or a jiu-jitsu competition, for example, is all of a sudden you lose that goal. So you lose that focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've dealt with it when I've been training for like a specific event before whereby I've completed the event and it's like well kind of what now mm-hmm. do you think that the loss of that goal contributed to that slump into a depressive episode um not not particularly it was more that um at like at that time so after that I got a few uh, like some bigger or- fight organizations approach me and say that they wanted to, to like take me on, have me on their roster, things like that. And yeah, there's, there was some really cool international opportunities that came my way. And then I was also in the first year of my doctorate program. And I was just, and I was actually at that point still working as a special needs teacher. So I was spread thin. Spread. <laughs> um Ironically, I was also putting on a lot of weight. So, like, that, the, the spreading was a thin part. My body weight was, like, going up because I was eating a lot of my feelings because I was, like, I just didn't know what to do. Um, and when we feel unnurtured, that's how lots of us choose to nurture ourselves. And I think having to make those, de- like, those big life decisions, thinking and having just that point in life, like, what do I want? Do I want to pursue this path of becoming a professional fighter? And, and seeing how far I can take it or and then p- kind of putting my degree on the back burner and reshifting my priorities and having to do a lot of reflection and then also not getting the recognition that I wanted and just being very, very confused about what I wanted. So I think made the, that confusion of so many moving parts. And at the time I was 24 years old, um, so again, my brain wasn't fully formed, right? 24, 25. So again, thinking about 
they had to think about what I wanted and having lots of options, which is good, right? But options that felt very, at the time, I think lots of things felt very permanent. And I think when I know when we make decisions, there is that kind of um, concreteness that you, you feel about them. Whereas in reality, most decisions you can be like, actually, no, like I want to I want to do this again. Right. But at the time, things felt like I had to be very certain and I wasn't ready for that. But I had to be. <laughs> do you think that the, the spreading yourself thin kind of came from that chip on your shoulder that you mentioned before? Is like, I need to be able to do all of these things for whoever for me for them was does that is that something that you still struggle with or is that something that you no I've (laughs) I have been to the darkness of my own consciousness (laughs) enough that I no longer struggle with that I've I've different Mm -hmm. struggles now um and I think internal peace has been a big part of what I've taken away from that Mm -hmm. and um because yeah I I was just filled with a lot of envy Right, I'd be. I'd see other people doing things. I'd be like, "Why not me too?" Right, because I've got again so much trust in my work ethic. So I see them doing that. I'm like, "I know I could do that too." A friend starting up a charity, and I was like, "I should start up my own charity. I could do that too. Why not me?" Right, and it's like so a big part of what I do now, because the reality is anyone can do anything they want as long as they put their mind to it. So I I have to do goal setting Mm -hmm. because otherwise I get distracted. And I've actually even created a like a personal manifesto of like the different domains of my life and what I stand for in each of those domains. Yes. So now, so when defining like a value set that you work back from, and then hanging your beliefs off of that, and then goal setting thereafter, sort of. Yes. Nice. Um, because otherwise, I get very lost, yeah. and I, it's easy to get distracted. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, the summer after I graduated from uh, my doctorate program last year, I took two months off. I'm like, I'm letting loose, right? So I think the same was like as a type A, yes. like on season, off season. Yep, yep. Um, and like, how do you reward yourself for your goals too? Because otherwise, I've got all these goals. And what was happening at that time when I was spreading myself very thin, I had a lot of goals, but it was at the cost of my um, my social relationships. Yep. And I was, I was not very pleasant to be around. But... Um, I had a lot of list of achievements. <laughs> all of these things that yeah. I've done. I'm an asshole, but yeah. look at these things I've done. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it was like my sister, who was like, Kim, I can't talk to you anymore. It's like, you need to go and speak to someone because it's costing our relationship. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very glad she did that because it was, a really, it was a really tough time and I don't think I would have been able to advocate for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned, or I mentioned, the the kind of the value set. When it comes to kind of creating this personal manifesto, how do you go about defining your values to kind of work backwards from? Oh, ah, and here we have ben. a handy book. So I do like a lot of writing for me, very, very useful, but... um. So I think like just the different domains of my life, but an activity that I feel like is very useful. Let me find. Um, I did a what's the right word? Like a mind map of me, and I put my name in the middle because there was a was an interesting quote that I heard. Um, it was like Sam Harris saying that you know I'm not the best meditator, I'm not the best neuroscientist, but the Venn diagram of what um, of where all of my skill set comes together, I am uniquely qualified to do what I do. And I was like, oh, okay, because a lot of the time I feel like I have this vast skill set, but I'm not, I'm not the best psychologist. I'm not, like, the best person at jiu-jitsu um, or the best person for, like, mindfulness and the, these kind of practices. But I don't know many other uh, jiu-jitsu practitioners who are also clinical psychologists who also meditate to the level that I do and have, like, those skill sets. So I had to, like, just doing things like, like me and like this and then thinking, like... So I do a lot of thinking about who I am, like the different parts and writing those down. And so which just parts. as a bit of context for, for people who are listening, oh. what, what are we looking at here? Okay, so it's my name in the middle, <laughs> Kim, and then different parts of, of my life that are important. So one arm that comes off is like research and the research that I've done with flotation tanks, meditation, alternative therapy and well-being. 
my experiences. I've run my own business. I've worked at a private practice, my work with schools and children and clinical work with anxiety and depression, the lifestyle aspect that's important for me, which is like sports. I was heavily into powerlifting for a while too, and like jujitsu and my clinical skills. And then, um, as a communicator and like public speaking. So that's, and then thinking about how I can connect all these things and, um, and like moving forward from there because I don't know but sometimes I just feel like my, at least my life sometimes overwhelms me so I need to find a way to like break it down and I think stopping taking that time for me and just thinking of myself as a as an entity the same way I'd approach another thing mm-hmm. yeah. kind of removing yourself from the situation almost is okay this is the skill set that Kim has yeah these are the skills that Kim has. These are the skills that Kim is looking to improve, maybe looking to like enhance. How can Kim bring these skills together in such a way that moves her forward in the direction that leverages all of those skills? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I actually ran a goal-setting workshop at the beginning of this year for, for people, and we started by thinking of values because a lot of the time when people do like New Year's resolutions – they never achieve them, right? Because the goal has nothing to do with the value. And so you, you never go after it. So we started with thinking about like what's important to you? What are the values that those things embody? Now, what are the goals within each of those things that you would like to do this year? Nice. So what were some common goals that people come up with and common values that mm-hmm. they kind of bring to those goals that maybe don't match up? Um, well, obviously, the goal that everyone has is like, I want to lose, lose weight. weight. Yeah, every year. Or like, I want to go to a gym. I'm like, but why? Why do you want to go to this gym? And um, and like people, people struggle. But when you start with a value system, and interestingly, what was coming up for a lot of people was connection, right? Like connection is something that they value, like love and intimacy. And their lives weren't embodying that. that. Yeah. yeah, so the goal, and then the goals are very different, right? And now we're not looking at joining a gym membership and doing something that you actually have no interest in doing, right? We're looking at how are you starting to live a life that's more fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Jiu-jitsu, they're looking for yeah. love and intimacy and connection, but also oh. fitness. Yeah, I always feel like I'm trying to spread a cult. Even yesterday <laughs> at my work dinner, this woman was like, yeah, I just haven't made any like many friends yet. I'm looking to join a gym. Like, have you heard of (laughs) jiu-jitsu? Allow me to preach my gospel. (laughs) So what was your your bachelor's degree in? Because you mentioned that you were initially working as a special needs teacher. Yeah. So did you come from an education background? Um, So I started with my undergraduate degree. Um, So I used to want to be an actress. Nice. Yeah, that was a childhood dream. And so I went to uh, University of Southern California. I joined their acting program for my undergrad. And so anytime, I believe anytime you're passionate about anything, like go to the Mecca. Yep. So I get to LA and let's just say it put my passion in proportion. <laughs> I was like, oh, I thought I was passionate about I know, acting. I know nothing. <laughs> you guys, you guys are passionate. I'm just kidding around. Mm. Um and so that was very useful for me to be in that kind of environment. So then at the end of my first year, <clears throat> I was like, well, what else am I good at? Like, what else can I do? And I'd graduated from a British high school in Hong Kong. And so I was, and I was the last year to do A-levels. So I knew a lot about very little. And I was like, well, I did pretty well with my psychology A-level. And what I had always loved about theatre, which wasn't the vibe in L.A., was that theatre was a humanizing ex- was a shared humanizing experience, and I'd been involved in very experimental Japanese theatre, like Buto, where you're wearing not a lot of clothing, like stomping on the floor, like white body paint. Um, LA was not that scene. It was like musical theatre. Everyone's so beautiful, <laughs> and I was like, oh, like theatre to me is like ugly truth, and it's like let's sit here it's a lot and watch more visceral, this. Yeah. yeah. So I think if I'd gone to New York, I probably still would have been an actress. Um, but L.A. was a wake-up call that I needed. And so I ended up changing my major to psychology. And I took on a minor in business, uh, as well as keeping my minor in theatre. And towards the end of my graduation, um, I had a, a really amazing business mentor in the business school. And I was just like, what do I do with my life? Like, I've gr- I'm graduating from this school. 
And he was like, well, Kim, like, what comes easy to you? And I was like, well, I've always loved working with children. So growing up in Hong Kong, I had to, my mom was like, you're going to get a Saturday job. I don't want a Saturday job. None of my friends have it. So you're going to get a Saturday job to earn the value of money because you don't understand how hard it is. And that's so, the work ethic coming back. Yeah. yeah. Where's your mom? Yeah. yeah. So then I take on a Saturday job teaching drama to children. So that's kind of where, um, and I've always really, really loved that. And I like love working with children. So he's like, well, like work with children. I think like, I've grown up in Asia where there's almost this stigma to teaching, right? Which is so unfortunate because teachers are creating the next generation mm-hmm. but there's this funny stigma to it especially having grown up in Hong Kong um, and so like that for some reason didn't sit well with me and and he was like why he's like if this comes easy for you why are you why are you pushing that away so, oh, so like so my um, my compromise was how do I challenge myself within that area and I was like what about like special needs like the children that are harder to love Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that was the way I could like challenge myself and working in that domain. And so, and then I left LA and I, because my visa didn't go through. And I, so I came back to Hong Kong with my tail in between my legs because my life was like onwards, upwards, got to move forward. And then my visa yeah, gets, I'm like, oh, oh, got to move back <laughs> home. All right. Well, okay. the powers that be <laughs> <laughs> changed their mind. Yeah. Uh, um, so my first year wasn't a very good year, but um, I was a research assistant at a university developing an eye tracking device for the early detection of autism, um, while also working at a school in the special needs department. I soon realized that research, oh, computer programming and coding, I'm an extrovert yeah. and my soul. <laughs> oh, oh being ripped out of me um and I much preferred the frontline work and being at a school and so then I ended up as a special needs teacher and working in that school area and just having the privilege of working with some amazing amazing like children some on the spectrum some with ADHD and before I'd worked in special needs I was kind of on the fence with ADHD I was like is it a real diagnosis like what it's not a blanket diagnosis oh, yeah. this kid can't concentrate must be ADHD yeah until I work with this one boy like go outside and work with uh, um, like David on his maths work and we go outside and we're like hey we're gonna work on this and 15 minutes later he's taught me about all the different trees at Yellowstone National Park and I'm like this is ADHD I'm like this is it like I I he sucker punched me like I'm here supposed to be working on this math stuff but <laughs> you're right have you seen the red <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm like wow and then he just like wasn't doing well academically and that that's the kind of issue that I had working in the school because I'm like I'm trying to force this child to fit into a cookie cutter mold of education yeah. he's not he's meant to be a park ranger He's like he'd be such a good park ranger, but he has to get past maths first. Yeah. It's painful. And then I work with this one autistic boy who was like really bad behavioral needs. Um it's and the he'd almost he got a bad reputation at the school because of these behavioral issues. And there was one time where a teacher was like, Oh, Max just loves you. He's like we're so like it's so like he loves you. I was like, no, I was like, I love him. Like, and that's, that's the difference. Um, and he, so he really showed me what it was like to be, to be autistic. And he's like, Miss Carter, you need to understand there's a good part of my brain and a bad part of my brain. And I just don't have control over who's in the driver's seat. He's like 10 years old. I mean, that's an amazing degree of self-awareness for one, but also the fact that he thinks that there's a bad part of his brain at 10 years of age I mean no kid should be kind of thinking that way about themselves at, at that age mm-hmm. so you're teaching special needs kids and this is at the same time that you're preparing for this oh, fight yeah. as well <laughs> how yeah. did you manage those two things because those are obviously two very different, different worlds yeah so again, no social life. Yep. Um, so I would wake up at like six. Sometimes I go for a run in the morning. Um, I have to be at school at 7.50. And then, but luckily, I, I mean, I don't think I could have done it in a corporate job, right? So then luckily I'm out of school at like four. Yep. And then I'm like straight to the gym. Um, and then I had the privilege of living at home at the time, right? So and Bills like, were a bit lower, oh, life's cheaper. Yeah. yeah, life was cheaper and I was able to manage that. 
and again very little social life and just like that tunnel vision and people I, I tell my friends who I'm who are still friends with me now I'm like how did you guys put up with me like thank you so much for staying by my side because I feel like I wasn't an easy person to be friends with it was it was a very isolating experience um yeah it was it was difficult was there any periods of anxiety when you were kind of going through this this training process where you were kind of questioning what you were doing in terms of you mentioned that you you spread yourself quite thin Mm -hmm. so was there any point whereby you started becoming aware of just how thin that was and it felt like things needed to give before the fight and then did that happen after the fight as well Mm. I think before the fight because I was like if I say I'm gonna do something I'm gonna do it yeah um it's gonna happen yeah it's gonna, it's gonna happen uh I did a lot of journaling at the time, and sometimes, and actually, before I moved to Shanghai, right, throwing away um, baggage, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> throwing away things, and like just picking up the journal. I think there was there was a lot of self doubt, and um, and I, I like I live very open and honestly, and so like a lot of crying, just like as a release um, of of being like, yeah, like I believe I can do this, but like, what if I'm wrong? Like, what if what if it's not true? Like, what if my belief system isn't aligned with reality? Um, like, what if she does beat me, right? But I think I was very obsessed with wanting to be a fighter. Very obsessed. Mm-hmm. And so that that stuff didn't bother me too much. And when people would say, oh, like, I'd be invited to a party, and I just, like, wouldn't go because I didn't want to go because I was, like, I was becoming a fighter, guys. Like... <laughs> Save your party. It's a fighters don't party. <laughs> yeah, John Jones is the exception to the rule. Um, and they'd be like, oh, Kim, like, you're making so much sacrifice. And I remember thinking... See, fuck yeah, I am. I'm like, it's not sacrifice. Yeah. I'm like, you... And being quite obnoxious. I'm like, you see it's sacrifice because you're weak. And and having this almost air of, um, of superiority over that people. high and mighty feeling. Yeah. yeah. Which, um, which I'm like, I don't know where, like that, I think that's necessary. And that's why, um, when you're, when you're being like that and having that tunnel vision, but it's not healthy. No. Right. Um, so that's why sometimes people, when they speak about like number one basketball players, right? Like Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, like, oh, those guys are arrogant. I'm like, yeah, to be that's like the number one in the NBA. Yeah. Like you, that attitude of like, I will do what others don't so I can do what others can't and, yeah I mean if you're if you're looking to achieve something then it's fantastic it's, it's an incredible driving force but if you're looking to maintain healthy relationships <laughs> and friendships and that sort of yeah. thing then those are not the most compatible no I also think when you're getting paid millions of dollars yeah, to do something it's fuck, different yeah. when you're taking part in a small circuit professional yeah. fight <laughs> you've got to kind of align your priorities um so that's what uh, that that's what happened over the next like two two years after that. Thinking like, what are my priorities? And having to be um, because I was pulled so thin, being like, no, Kim, we need to bring things back together. Like, what is important to us? What is our value system? So I think that's where that that really started for me. Because before that, I was I was moving with direction, but it was like what, wherever people would pull me. So like even CrossFit. I got involved in CrossFit and one coach was like, You'd be, you could be a CrossFit athlete. So I, t- I did the CrossFit Open and I was like so into that. And I was very vulnerable to the image that people put onto me because all I had was a good work ethic yep. and no vision. Yep. I could do anything, but I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. yeah. So you, you finished the fight and you're also managing your your phd first year of your phd at this point yeah first year and you considered dropping out mm-hmm. to be a professional to fighter, be a professional fighter <laughs> to be a professional fighter yeah this led to a a change in direction in terms of what it was that you ended up studying did it not oh yeah so for sure yeah. um so what's that was also the first year that uh well, that that was the year that Ronda Rousey lost her fight against Holly Holm. Oh, okay. And yeah. this is this is important 
because the goal, when I was thinking about the decisions and trying to pursue both, I was like, well, I'll be like Ronda Rousey, right? Like she really, I was like, well, she's done it. Yeah. And then she lost. And it was like, what? And then I saw the way the media responded to her loss. And that was a really good wake up call for me to be like, oh, um, so even if I become like the number one in the world, then what? Like, would, would I feel fulfilled by that? Like, I don't know. Like that's, and then I like, I, I don't know if, if that would be the, the pinnacle of my existence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just seeing how the media responded, I think, see, I'm very, I'm very vulnerable to media. <laughs> I'm a millennial. Um, and the perceptions of others. Yeah. <laughs> but again, yeah, I was pr- continuing to pursue that. I was in a very toxic, like, relationship or dating someone at the time who was encouraging me to do both as well. Um, he worked at Goldman Sachs, so, I mean, that just goes to show. <laughs> toxic individuals. Um, and... And the, but there was one day where I was in a statistics class and like let's just say statistics isn't my forte and I get called on to answer a question and I was like I don't know I was like I just don't know I was like I don't well, I was like what do I know I was like I don't know anything and it just like snowballed and I stormed out of the class crying this is like a doctorate cohort of like 12 15 adults Right, I'm the youngest person in the cohort. I look like such a big baby. Like storm out. I remember going back home in, and I remember like I just like took off all my clothes. I was like in such a mania, and I just lay on the sofa. Um, it's like an air for drama, and, <laughs> and I, was, like, I don't know what to do. I was like, I don't know what to do, and I was like just crying. And then after I calmed down, I like ended up going on Facebook because Facebook is the 21st century Oprah. Uh, make me feel better about myself. Um, Sad status. But, Give me likes. Give yeah, me the affirmation. Yeah, Tell me I'll be okay. Please. I was like scrolling through and I see someone post something like, looking for uh, looking for a receptionist to help out at my float center. I was like, float center? Receptionist? <laughs> I could do that. <laughs> that sounds great. I need great. a win. Give me yeah, something yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah. And so I messaged her. I was like, hey, I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing next but I saw your post and I'm really interested on coming in and then um and so like we met and she's a very spiritual person and she's like you know it's so funny I asked the universe to send me someone to help me do research and you're here and at the time I'm like oh I don't want to tell her that I'm potentially dropping out of my program um I'm gonna let this one run I was like okay okay and she's like uh Go float, try it out, and tell me what you think. And I went, I got into, got into the tank. I, I was like, and set an intention before you go into the tank. Um, and I set an intention. And I can't, there's something like what about like looking for direction or finding like love within myself. Um, I mean, looking back now, I was, I was going through a burnout, 100%. Like I would be on the metro station and I'd just start crying, like before, up to this, just thinking about how poorly I was achieving in all the domains of my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I went and I floated and it was just such a novel experience. And I'd done a little bit of meditation before. So was, I had, a, I had a, an okay relationship to my breath. So develop obviously my since then my relationship with my breath's developed a lot so that's why I, I say it like that um and I get into the tank and it was just this release and I was crying and but I felt so good which is actually interesting I have a lot of breakthroughs and tears happen um we'll talk about that later uh there's like crying in the tank and um and I came I remember just coming out of the tank and being like, what just happened to me? What's going on here? I, I need to study this. So before I was thinking about doing my dissertation research on autism, um, and then because I'm just selfish and uh, just want to do some more self-discovery. Float tanks. Yeah, I was like, let's do float tanks because I don't know how much research has been done here. And this is something that I want to study for the next like two, three years. Um, and and so I ended up studying people's experience inside the tank, seeing how their self-concept develops and their relationship to their thoughts changes through a sensory deprivation experience. Wow. How many hours did you spend in the tank over the course of those three years? 
um, I'd say like, like a, at least, yeah, like at least 200. Yeah. Wow. So what was some of the, the kind of recurring patterns that you found in, in conducting this research? Because um, alternative therapies are something that are kind of gaining more traction now as a as a, an alternative to the traditional kind of psychopharmacology. It's like, oh, you're feeling sad. Have these pills. You'll feel better. Uh-huh. Like, what what were some of the patterns that you found kind of repeating in mm-hmm. the individuals that you studied? Um, so most people go to a float tank because they're expecting an out of body surreal experience, yep. right? So there's definitely a target market that's being attracted to those experiences um, and it changes the way people relate to their body and what people expect to be psychedelic uh, it's just much more internal and what float tanks do is they trick your body into such a deep state of relaxation but what I've what I learned is that unless you're you have some kind of training on how not to get attached to the monkey mind, right? Like that chatter, you don't use a float tank appropriately. So I actually think that many trainings need to be done before people go into float, because otherwise you just end up having quite a busy internal conversation, right? Um, Whereas people who have a little bit more understanding of consciousness and can separate that have much deeper experiences. Sometimes they have those out-of-body experiences where um, you kind of like see yourself out, out, like outside, outside of yourself. yourself. Um, and it helps people gain more clarity. Clarity was a big word that continued to come up. Clarity, connection to their body, and just slowed everything down. And I think in today's day and age, any antidote that allows you to be present is something that needs to be used more because so much of daily life and city life which is being curated day by day because um, money is king um, it, it takes us away from that and we're so far devoid from our natural states whereas floating evil there's more magnesium sulfate in there more salt than the dead sea so much buoyancy so your body like it's different to Completely sleeping weightless yeah Right, there's that. That magnesium sulfate is so good for your muscles. Um, doesn't make a difference, interestingly enough, if the lights are on or off. Interesting. Yeah. So the research showed, but um, so obviously I did a, a big like deep dive into studies that have already been done, and so people who also go through float are our float research participants on like six to twelve week um, programs. They found that people were drinking less. This wasn't something that people were studying, but there were just things that came up consistently. So it's kind of like a knock-on effect, almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's not doesn't show you that it's good for you, it doesn't. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Why? Why do you think that was? Um, so I so generally, in a in a clinical setting, what I see is people drink to to numb, right? Or people drink to social like to socialize. And, um, but generally in a way that's not healthy, right? And drinking is a good way to, to ease things out. Whereas if you found another, another behavior that serves the same function, why would you do both? Yep. Yeah, of course. So do you have any particularly vivid memories of experiences that you had Aside from like this, this first experience that you had, obviously, like there's this massive emotional block, and you're crying in the tank, and it's helping you kind of work through some of these issues. As you progress through this, some two hundred hours of floating, did that? Did the nature of that experience change over time, or was it kind of the same experience but with the intensity turned up? So I'd say when I first started floating, I was, as playing. Um, and so because there's so much salt, the salt actually crystallizes on the top of the tank and I would press the button for the lights and then kind of like once I felt myself relax, kind of like open my eyes just a little bit. So a little bit of the light sparkle would go into my eyes because I think I was trying to like trip myself out. Um, and I, and just seeing what would happen with that kind of visual stimulus when my body was so relaxed. So that was, that. those kind of memories, um, I have those. 
But then once I started to go deeper into into my exploration of, of consciousness and was meditating a lot more avidly outside of the float tanks as well, I noticed that my body would sink into that state with much more ease. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't have time to play around and try to like yeah, I'd I'd zone in. And my body because the the temperature of the water in the float tanks is the same as your your body temperature is like thirty five to thirty six degrees Celsius. Um, there were times where I just felt like I was going through space, and like just not on this planet anymore. And that um, and so I think the the floating experience is amazing in itself. But coming back from that too, I think the same with like hallucinogenics, right? Like the trip is amazing within itself. But it's then when you come back to reality, you're like, oh, I almost feel like I have this skill set, right? Or this, my vision has now, I, I see the horizon for f- much more widely than I did before. And that kind of lightness helps you make decisions better, right? And it helps you be much more comfortable and at mm-hmm. ease with day-to-day life. Do you think that your your background in psychology helped you with that kind of repacking, as it were? So you, you come back from the experience and you have this perception of having an enhanced skill set you can see the horizon from a broader perspective your background is in psychology did that help you with the kind of okay i have these skills now mm-hmm. here's how i can leverage them as opposed to yeah oh, that was a good experience and then yeah. you fall back into old patterns yeah yeah i think it's also the kind of person that i am yeah. right i think some people um i yeah because some people are like oh yeah travel see the world makes you a better person but I've met people who've traveled who are terrible human beings <laughs> right so I think yep. <laughs> it doesn't matter what experiences you have it's like have you chosen to learn from them right and that is a very conscious choice that the people who are like continual learners make um, and I used to think that everyone was like me and now I realize no like some people aren't I don't know if people just don't have the capacity to show up to life or if it's it's a lack of necessity. Um, I, I don't know because not everyone not everyone's wired. I, I feel like you and I are like-minded, right? But I realize there's a huge po- part of the population who are the same generation as us, right? But their approach to life is just very different. Mm-hmm. Like the lack of intention, as it were. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily like a, a criticism because obviously everyone kind of everyone goes through life in their own their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, we need all sorts. Exactly, yeah. exactly that. But having that goal, going back to what you were saying earlier about like having a goal to work back from, having that goal to work back from, and then being able to set an intention towards that goal, is that something that you apply in other areas of your life as well? Mm. Like, because you mentioned learning, for example, is that something that you've kind of developed over time, that hunger for more knowledge, or is that something that's kind of always been there, that's been a constant? Um, I think as I've gotten older, I don't like, I feel like there is a very distinct difference between like my younger self um, or like chapters, right? Like my teenage self, my like early 20s self, my like now my late 20s self, um, which makes me appreciate that time is the ultimate teacher. Uh, I now have so much more respect for anyone older than me than I ever have because of, you know, how I remember myself being at 21. Um, But in terms of, like, that goal setting... um, Oh, actually, I'm sorry. Can you reword your question? I forgot. Um, To be honest, I think I might have forgotten. Okay. (laughs) In terms of um, the the way that you set an intention uh-huh. is self-education something mm. you set that have taken a more active role in setting that intention for yeah. recently yeah. or has that been kind of I just want to learn has that always been there um it's it's been relatively recent I think um what, what first started as a competitive, like, I just want to be the best. I want to be number one. Whatever mm-hmm. I do, I want to be number one. Chip on the shoulder. Yeah. Yep. There's that. Um, and then as I've gotten older, maybe it's, like, an almost an insecurity of, like, imposter syndrome. I'm like, yeah. am I even good at this? I don't know. So maybe, I, yeah. I'm really sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe, uh, I remember the first time someone called me, they're like, yeah, Dr. Carter. I'm like, fuck. I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> it's <whole> um, shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
or even like when I was working when I was working at a school with, with children and we're practicing the lockdown drill and they're like hey and um, turn to the responsible adult in the room and I was I remember looking around I was like that's me like, okay that whole I'm, loaded term of responsible yeah, adult <laughs> yeah and so now um, I in terms of like learning more I it's uh, something I do out of like passion and being able I now I get to read for fun which is such a privilege, whereas for like such a long time I was reading out of necessity and survival. Got all this work to do, like skim reading. Whereas now I've noticed when I read a book, I'm so slow. I like I read every word so nice. And I turn the page and like, oh, like and just That's in- a good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like enjoying reading rather than like skim reading, like what are the facts? Like super, super fast because like doctorate level reading is dry and I have to extract information to apply it to this and like did I get everything whereas now it's it's um it's a privilege right and being able to enjoy that process that you get to do as opposed to have to do yeah Yeah. and I, I also think it's important for me to stay current with popular thought because I um popular thought navigates how people make decisions right and how people are making choices and the information that's available to us and um and so when I work clinically sometimes I see people or I hear what people say and I'm like I know where that thought has come from right like I, I know what what you're reading I know what media you're exposing yourself to um so that's another part of the reason why it's important for me to see where where we are as a community mm-hmm. so you mentioned your your clinical practice there um briefly Going back to your initial experiences in the float tank and about how this recurring theme of clarity and kind of a, a reconnection to the body was something that kept coming up. In your in your clinical experience, obviously with non-disclosure and so on and so forth, but with with the individuals that you work with, is this disconnection from their kind of bodily experience something that people struggle with? Or is it, is it more common in cities mm-hmm. as well? Yeah, so I think it's important for me to frame what my clinical experience has been yeah. because for the populations that I've worked with. So I've done a lot of work um, in schools. So I've been working with third culture and international school children, always practicing in English. Uh, but I've worked at like a, a Korean school in Hong Kong where the most children were Korean but speaking in English and yep. different their parents' native language was Korean, where they spoke English. And then I've worked in private practices in Hong Kong, which were would be people of quite a high socioeconomic class. Um, and what's interesting is actually a, a huge gender issue here where we talk about our relationship to our body. 99% of the time when I'm working with women who have mental health issues or uh, emotional challenges... Um, their relationship to their body that like they're at war with their body I've worked with beautiful 18 year old girls who refuse who this one girl in particular didn't want to go on her all expense trip paid to Europe with her brother from her parents because she was bloated and she wasn't looking fat and well, she was looking fat and she's like, what's the point of going to Europe if I can't take pictures and like upload them oh, and gosh. I look fat? And let me tell you, she was beautiful. She was so, so beautiful. Mm. And like, and not that that matters, right? But, and then I've worked with women who are clinically obese and they're like, you know, if, if only I lost weight, then everything would change. I was like, what if I told you that doesn't matter? Like the one, we, we live inside our heads, right? The external, not an issue. Whereas the way men talk about their bodies is like, yeah, you're getting a bit fat, right? But that that shame and that um, it's not that's not their identity. Whereas for women, their bodies are their identity, right? And that's a huge it's a it's a huge issue. Um, but I would say that exercise is the cheapest form of antidepressants available. We research has shown and we know that exercising three times a week, even if it's vigorous walking, right, for 20 to 45 minutes, three times a week, just as effective as antidepressants, right, in a clinical trial that was conducted. But people don't want to go to the gym after work, right, because they're exhausted. 
the number of clients who there's one guy who was like, yeah, you know, just go home after work and I just want to smoke a doobie and just go to sleep. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay. Um, like, and I think the demands of our current work culture, I think the divide that no longer really exists between work and life, you know, we are we are a brand, we are our work mm-hmm. because of our relationship with technology, right? Things have really, really evolved. And, um, and so the challenges in order to create those healthy lifestyle choices into um, embodying a preventative practice of mental health, but we forget, we forget because the demand is so high, we, we have to pay these bills, right? They're things that we have to do. There are so many distractions that take us away from what we should be doing in order to take care of ourselves, right? That things, and like our current industrial work community has escalated at such such high, high rates and our mind and body hasn't caught up, mm-hmm. right? So people are like, why don't I feel okay? It's like, because we're living in a very, very unnatural environment. Mm-hmm. Do you think, or have you found that... Um social media as it has become kind of more prevalent and ubiquitous especially i'm here here in china for example like wechat is everything Ugh. wechat is life my eyes have got worse since i've moved in the last two months i'm always on my phone staring at the screen <laughs> staring at the screen indefinitely but through social media i mean social media can obviously be a very powerful tool you can connect with people for example through things like podcasts in ways that you wouldn't mm-hmm. otherwise be able to but also there's that pressure as it were whereby you feel the need to maybe look a certain way or behave a certain way or have this many holidays a year because this person is doing that like, yeah hashtag best life ben. Hashtag living my best life yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you have you found that more men are struggling with body issues as a result of social media or, or do men tend to still view their bodies in more of a kind of utilitarian fashion Oh, um, so I, I mean, I think I'm always very careful when talking about gender issues because of what is socialized versus what is like innate. Um, as someone was telling me the other day about how social media has really also changed, like for, for gay men, like just obviously like highly sexualized and that if you're not an Abercrombie and Fitch gay man, like there really isn't a gay scene for you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think is very, very interesting there. But um, something that I do want to say about social media is just the way it's set up. Um, it's really to trick our brains. Yeah. So in traditional media, there are stop cues, right? So you're reading a book and then, okay, end of the chapter, I close it. Okay, end of the page, okay, I close it. Whereas social media never ends, Right, you're scrolling, Continuous you're scrolling, scroll. you're scrolling. Yep. Right, there's no, there's no stop cue. So we have to enforce those things on ourselves, and it's very, very hard to do. Right, you're like, I'm gonna go to bed now. Forty five. Yeah, you're like, why am I looking at another picture of a fluffy dog? Again, again. <laughs> well, Netflix is telling me that I need to stop watching. Maybe I should stop watching. <laughs> yeah, and even Netflix, like those yeah. stop cues have are, are becoming less and less existent. Um, it's like those those things there, the way that likes are set up for our dopamine receptors, it's it's Vegas, bust right? Yeah. yeah, it's like at the slot machine, yeah. at the slot machine, right? And it's um it's a it's a it's not a fixed reward, right? So when you open it up, you don't know what you're going to get, and that's why it's exciting. How many likes? Who's commented? Right? It's always changing. Whereas when things are consistent, and we know what we're going to get, not as exciting. We don't show up for that no novelty yeah so so social media is set up for our, our weaknesses mm-hmm. right that it's not set up to take care of us so i think there are mental health issues there 110 percent that are are developing and obviously something we talked about before i know the challenges i have as a relatively healthy adult with pretty good control of my mental constitution um 14 year old kimberly would not have done well and so i I also think it's interesting what's going to happen for people who are creating a dual identity now. Mm-hmm. You have your identity that's um, IRL in real life, mm-hmm. and you have your online identity. And the online, what like this divide for let's say an eleven-year-old who has an Instagram, a TikTok, a Snapchat. They're, they're these two these two selves, right? Like, what is this going to look like ten years from now? I don't know. 
I, I, I have no, I, no one knows. What we do know is that with adolescents, increased social media activity creates higher levels of depression and anxiety. We know this. Um, and it, the relationship with body image as well, right? Because people are giving you like false images and the amount of filters on things, oh, God. Yeah. right? And it's like, and I see these makeup tutorials of 14 year old girls trying to look old, so much older and like, ooh. But you're right, like there is a flip side, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of connection. And so I think when you're able to use it consciously, when you put these limits on yourself, right? It's like the same as eating pizza, right? One slice of pizza, like, isn't going to kill you. But if you're eating a whole pizza every night, like, you know, the cardiologist yeah. will be happy because it's job security for them. Um, right? But it's it's not what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you can't use social media aimlessly. It has to be something that you definitely use with, with guidelines. It's coming back to setting an intention. Yeah. Again. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so one one last question um, before we finish that I like to ask everyone that I've had on so far is if if someone is listening to this and they find themselves in a position where they're particularly struggling, like maybe they're in the throes of a depressive episode or maybe they're struggling with some anxiety, if there was one thing that you could recommend that they do that would help them move forward through that challenging period, what would it be? One thing. One thing. <laughs> Hmm. I'll let you have like maybe a series of things that are like because I'm going to cheat okay okay so I'm going to say have a checklist okay so and that's like a physical checklist Mm -hmm. and on that checklist (laughs) you have things that you know make you feel better and so when you when you hit that wall and you're like well have I gone through everything on my checklist right and and being very honest with yourself and if you, and okay, actually, I have gone through everything on my checklist and I'm still, I like, I can't get out of bed. Like, I can't do this. And I have these recurrent thoughts that scare me. Reach out for help, right? And I think my, my life's work is about destigmatizing the mental health conversation. Um, I believe prevention of a cure, which is why I work predominantly with children, but I obviously do see adults as well. Because I think if we can equip human beings with the emotional vocabulary to communicate their needs and to connect with other people, we've done like 50% of the work. The other 50% is for mental health professionals who can come in to to support that. Um, And I say that because I've sat in several cafes and restaurants where I hear people using their friends as their therapists and people don't know how to help, right? Sometimes there's conversation topics and your friends they're in the deep end too like I don't know like I can hear you having this conversation but I I don't know what to do and it's it increases the level of anxiety right so I think when you're in that bad place that is very very negative and mental health does a very mental health issues do a very good job of isolating you and making you feel that no one has felt as terrible as you have felt before and this experience is unique to you the reality is is that is a symptom of depression everyone feels like that when they're depressed which is a good thing because now we know it's not it's not personal, mm-hmm. it's, it's the disease, right? We now have like a symptom list. And so, um, see, I ramble. See, Ben, sorry. Can't, sorry, can't just keep give going me down the checklist. One thing, right? <laughs> and uh, being able to reach out. And what I would say about depression and depressive episodes is that once you've had one period of depression, you are likely to experience it again. And that's why it's very, very important to get help the first time you get it. Because it means that when you experience it again, you recognize the symptoms. And like, oh, I've been here before. Do I follow this thought? Do I go down this pathway? Because I know where it leads to, right? So you're able to recognize the signs, turn it off and say, not today. Not today. I've got like things I need to do, right? And then what used to cost you two years or two months of your life will now cost you maybe like two days or two hours. And then you come out of it and you're like, oh... It wasn't as dark as before, right? And like each episode is something that you learn from and you can manage. Whereas the first time it happens, it's very scary, right? And um, so I'd say like, yeah, like so management through a checklist. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. Management through a checklist. And if you check off your checklist and you're still struggling, get help. Mm-hmm. Perfect. 
Thank you very much, Kim. No, thank you for having me. And thank you very much for listening. That was Rolling Forward. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you enjoyed this episode or you feel that there is something that I should be talking about or someone that I should be talking to, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The most effective way to do that is to leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you are listening on. I will read any and all reviews, so please leave me your comments so I can provide you with even more value. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.